Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Huddle up now, team. If we don't start doing better in this tournament, we're going to be the laughing stocks of the Scrabble world. It's not that bad, Captain. It is that bad. That Nigerian team is making us look like, you know... Mucilage? Oatcakes? Hobnails? No, everybody just shut up for a second. Don't say any Scrabble words. Betsy, on the next play, I want you to... You know, I want you to... Uh, peeve? Quizify. Dickiest? First of all, no, that's not what I want Betsy to do. Second of all, don't say that word. Quizify? No, the other one. It's British slang for faultiest. It's legal. Here's what I want. See that Nigerian guy who just played stew pan? I want you to give him a concussion. I don't have the right tiles for concussion. I don't want you to spell concussion. I want you to give him one. Run over there and smash his head against the wall. You want us to cheat? That's the dickiest idea ever. Stop saying that. We should probably bamboozle. That's a higher score. You know what's wrong with you idiots? You're living inside the game. You gotta get out of it. Somewhere in America, there's a kid who's saying, I'd like to play in World Scrabble tournaments, but I'm chronically unprepared and have no facility with words. And every time we cheat, we give that kid hope that maybe he's not defined by his limitations. Now, I want you to listen to this show. It's about a baseball pitcher who didn't pitch well in his most important game, and it's about Scrabble, the game we love, the game we're going to cheat at in the next couple of minutes. And now he was disqualified from international Yahtzee because he wasn't taking any drugs. Colin McEnroe. I probably don't need to tell you who Ron Darling is, but just in case I do, he pitched in the major leagues from 1983 to 1995, including nine seasons with the New York Mets, where he won a World Series in 1986, breaking the hearts of many people like me, Red Sox fans, in the process. Uh, He's an Emmy Award-winning baseball analyst and the author of Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. First of all, uh, Ron Darling, welcome to our conversation. Uh, Great to be here, Colin. I I just wanted to tell you that I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, a diehard Red Sox fan, so it was kind of a strange deal for me, too. Well, although, let me tell you something. Uh, This is getting way ahead of our story, but since we're here anyway, let's just talk about this for a second, because I think think it it is sort of there in this book and there in your life. Earlier in that World Series, when it seemed as though the Red Sox had it won, I remember standing there in front of the TV set watching and thinking, like my whole life, I've been a Red Sox fan, and this has never happened. And what will my life be like after? Will it be any good? Will I have any, will I have any sort of you know on an almost Hegelian basis? Will I have anything to strive for, to wish for, or want? I didn't feel entirely great about it. It's maybe like the scene in uh, Chariots of Fire at the end where Abrams wins the race, and and he's perplexed by his own lack of joy about it because what's left for him. So there there is that right when you when you get something you want. It's a complicated feeling. Well, there's also there's a lot of uh, Calvinism still left in New Englanders and Boston Red Sox fans. So, you know, there's part of you that doesn't feel as though that you can uh, be that person on top of the mound. You always have to make sure that uh, you're doing all the little things, too. I, I, I know that when game six and they were one out away, yeah. I, remember, I remember the one thing that came in my mind, again, uh, I fell in love with the 67 team when I was a kid. Me too. Was that, well, if we're going to lose this, 
I mean, losing to the Red Sox, I mean, I guess it's the best-case scenario <laughs> of a bad scenario, but um, it wasn't to be. And except for a couple of bounces, maybe they'd be celebrating the 30th anniversary instead of us. I was a seventh-grade kid in Fenway Park on the last day of that 67 season. You get, you get my expectations about baseball ratcheted up way too high. I want to go back a little bit in time, uh, actually, but before that. Uh, obviously, everybody's talking about 1986, and I watch the Red Sox every night, and there's celebrations and bringing people back, and I'm sure the Mets are doing exactly the same thing, but yeah. with considerably less complicated feelings about it. But I, I don't want to start there. I actually want to start uh, in a different year, and that's your 12-inning, one-hit, 16-strikeout, 1-0 loss to Frank Viola in the NCAA Regionals when you did pitch for Yale in 1981. And at the time, you said, I think that game will always be on my mind. Is it still on your mind? I mean, you wrote a book about a different game, but what about? let's talk about that game first. Yeah, I, I think it's, I don't know what it says about me as a ball player, but I think it's the greatest game that I ever pitched, and I lost it one nothing. You never know when you're going to have that signature game, right? You know, you don't know if it's going to be, uh, I was hoping it would be Game 7 of the World Series, uh, the reason I wrote the book, because it wasn't. I, I think there were two things involved. One is that Yale was playing against a team that was a perennial powerhouse in the East, uh, and our thought really was, how do we not get embarrassed in this game? And then secondly, I think because uh, Roger Angel was there from The New Yorker and wrote The Web of the Game, which is about Smokey Joe Wood, who was in attendance and that ball game, that it's the game I always think about that's the most special. You know, maybe it's because of the innocence of college baseball before you get paid. Maybe it's because Roger was there. I don't know, but all of those factors together make it special for me. No, there's two ways for a human being to deal with anything like that, whether it's you after that college game or perhaps the Red Sox after Game 7, 1986, or Game 6, 1986. And that is, well, what could I have done differently? What if, what if I'd done this differently? You know, what if I held that guy on a little bit more uh, effectively? <laughs> you know, and, and so, and the other thing to do is, if I assume if you're an athlete, you can't really dwell too much on that, right? It's done. There's going to be another thing and another thing and another thing. There's just no way I can replay stuff in my head. I mean, which kind of person are you? Oh, I, I think I was able to do both because I had a lot of great seasons after that year. So I was able to compartmentalize that game. And maybe it's just hubris of being young. You can put it on the back burner. But as I got older and as an you know, adult outside of baseball, it's still stuck in my cross. So even though I thought I had put it to rest with other seasons after that, obviously I didn't. And, and I, I wanted to find the baseball razor edge, razor's edge, a way of looking at it, of trying <laughs> to find, you know, what could I have done? Like you said, what was the reason? You know, all of Major League Baseball players are great from the day, usually they're six, seven, eight years old, and they usually succeed. So here I was in the biggest moment I'd ever have as a professional ball player. And I kind of failed miserably, and uh, I needed some answers, and that's why I wrote the book. The answers, the biggest answers came in two ways. One, that because of the rain out on Sunday, we played on Monday, I think paralysis by analysis set in for me big time, and that's on me, my fault. But the end result is, is that the Boston Red Sox, facing me for the third time in 11 days, said, you know what, you're not going to go deep into this game, young man. And they had more to do with it than anyone else. We're talking to Ryan Darling, one of the few, few professional athletes who could just toss off a Somerset mom reference, which he just did <laughs> a few seconds ago. Well, not once again to dwell on the on the college game a little bit, but um, you do talk in the book about feeling sick or spent or weary after big games. Uh, Tiger Woods called it flu-like symptoms. How did you yeah. feel after that Yale game? I mean, I think you must have known in a way that this— well, 
what with Roger Angel with a lot of things. This game would be something that people would talk about. You weren't on the right end of it exactly. Um, yeah. Do you remember how you felt? Yeah. Uh, well, one, I didn't know Roger was there until after the fact. In fact, I had read Roger, but uh, never met him. But I know that after the game was done, there were two things that came flashing through my mind. And one was that where were my parents? Because it was the first Yale game that I had ever pitched where I couldn't find my parents. There were a lot of people at the game. Most Yale baseball games were my parents and other guys' parents and, uh, and maybe a few, uh, a few alumni. So that was the first time I, couldn't see my, I didn't see my parents. And then second, I remember all the kids that were at the game came rushing out with whatever baseball hat, their jersey, or whatever for me to sign. And I found that very, very strange. I was, and I guess that was my first inkling that this was going to be the last game I pitched as a collegiate, and my next one will be as professional when signing autographs is done daily. So I just I found it strange that I went from uh, you know a college athlete with no one attending the games to all of a sudden uh, kids running on the field. It was my uh, guess indoctrination into collegiate to professional. Now let's go uh, solidly into 1986. And I think a lot of people, before you wrote this book, or perhaps it's uh, common knowledge among some of your more diehard fans, but a lot of people would want to ask you some questions about Game 6, how, how it was like to sit there watching Game 6, except you were the least aware person of about Game 6, or at least the latter stages of it, uh, in all of the baseball kingdom. Explain that. Well, two things were happening. You know, when the Mets tied it up, Mel Stottlemyre came up to me and said, hey, Ron, I want you to go home because we're going to win this game and we need you to be ready for tomorrow. For people at home to let you know, because 55,000 people were at Shea Stadium every night, it would take us about two hours before we could even leave the stadium. By the time people left or whatever and we could get to our cars, we would sit around for an hour and a half, have something to eat, talk about the game, and then just uh, wearily go into the shower and get dressed to go home. So he was trying to save me those two hours uh, of waiting. I got on the Grand Central in my car. I started to pull away from Shea Stadium. And, you know, of course, the noise was so raucous until it wasn't. And anyone who's a professional athlete knows if your home field is quiet, something bad just happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of you uh, turned around came back as, uh, as Keith Hernandez was coming in the, uh, the locker room of the Mets after he had made the second out with a few chosen expletives, and uh, I knew we were up against it. Um, but I watched in the uh, equipment room, of the trainer equipment room, and watched on his little nine-inch TV as everything unfolded. And that's going to be hit into center field, base hit. Here comes Carter to score, and the time run is at third in Kevin Mitchell. And with each succeeding hit, ball players are very superstitious. Uh, you didn't move, you stayed in the same seat. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run, and Ray Knight is at second base. And just made sure, uh, hopefully, that your karma would, would spread amongst those guys that were out there. And... Behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. And somehow, some way, the Mets scored three runs in that inning. And I still don't know, really. Uh, you know, it's the same way I feel about, like, how do planes fly. I mean, intellectually, I know how they fly, but I don't get it. Still don't get how we scored three runs. 
So one thing you say you know, in this book is that the whole notion of, I mean, it's so, I, I, the most pedestrian way of talking about it uh, is yeah. what athletes call visualization, but yeah, and you call it more dreaming. You know, you say, I didn't go into this game seven telling myself, okay, I'm going to stick it to these guys. I'm going to throw a three hitter tonight. I'm going to shut them down and get it down. Uh, I was content to continue my fine pitching performance in this series without really stopping to consider that fine might not cut it. So for you, there was at some level uh, of thought a problem that you have to think about what's about to happen differently? Yeah, well, I, how I would always fall asleep the night before any game, including a big game, is that I would kind of, you know, people count sheep. I would go through the order. And so Wade Boggs is up first. I'm going to throw a fastball away. If it's a strike, I'm going to counter with this pitch. If it's a ball, I'm going to counter with another pitch. And I would go through the entire lineup. Now, of course, in your dreams, it's always nine up and nine down. There's never any issue with anyone getting getting a hit. So I think what happened is that I think my first two successes in the series, even though I lost game one, uh, one to nothing, uh, pitching well anyway, is that you know I tried to find another key to get the Red Sox out instead of really just concentrating on the key I already had that had been effective. And I don't know whether it's layoff from the rain delay or whatever, but I felt like this veteran team of Red Sox hitters was starting to unravel kind of the maze that I presented to them. High drive into deep left center field. That one might go all the way. It is gone. Home run, Dwight Evans. And I, and I thought I needed a, a new puzzle for them. And as a hopper by the diving Santana, Mookie's going to come up throwing, but Henderson, because of that big lead, will score easily. And it is three to nothing, Boston. I don't. I don't know. In, in retrospect, if I did need a new puzzle or didn't, but I went with a new puzzle, and it was the wrong puzzle. So, you know, those are the things that eat at you. And and I know that when I'm around athletes, really, really talented athletes, they keep everything really simple and they keep everything in the moment. And I did anything but. You know, to say before a game that you're going to go out there and shut out a team on three hits is is losing everything there is. To, to be about pitching. And it is apparent in the early going from the moment that Wade Boggs opened the game with the line drive at Santana that it is a shaky start for Ron Darling. You know, Clayton Kershaw is probably the best pitcher right now when you watch him pitch. And he grinds over every pitch, and as soon as it's done, it's gone. It vaporizes. And that's how you have to be at your best when you're a major league pitcher, is that the concentration on each pitch and execution has to be there and as soon as it's gone, it vaporizes and you're on to the next pitch. That's where he's at. That's where I was not at in Game 7. Yeah, it, it, you notice it in all, all kinds of athletes. I notice it in particular in football quarterbacks whose you know, who's last interception just doesn't seem to mean anything to them when they get back out there. They just they, they have completely, you know, it, it really is like one of those, the etch-a-sketch. It's like they shook the etch-a-sketch yeah, yeah. up and it's just gone. It's just, you'll <laughs> never be able to re- reconstruct it. You uh, have alluded at the beginning of this interview or earlier in the interview about your choice to write about Game 7, write a, a book about this. It's not really a choice most athletes would make. I mean, here you are describing uh, being taken out of the game with two outs in the fourth inning down 3-0. The long walk back to the dugout was dreadful on top of dreadful. I was embarrassed, <laughs> too ashamed to 
look up at the crowd, I've talked about this before, but in all of team sports, there's nothing quite like the walk of shame that finds a pitcher being chased from a game due to his own piss-poor performance. You're called out for the world to see. Such an agonizing moment. It was sickening, really. And here I do mean really. I was actually sick to my stomach. You know, you've actually had a very storied and acclaimed career. Um, and and you, you, you do say it's kind of, you did say before, it's kind of your razor's edge. So this is something that you just decided you wanted to kind of palpate all of these feelings, all of the sensations in, in this one particular game. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting, Colin, is that I, I think my new job um, after baseball of announcing games, I'm trying all the time to take the fan inside of the professional baseball experience. And I think uh, in this book, what I was trying to, to let people know is that, you know, hitters go into slumps all the time, you know, five for 50 or whatever. But there's nothing really like having the manager take the game ball away from you and give it to someone else because he doesn't think you're good enough. Davey Johnson on his way, and he's making a hook right now. And as you walk off, the embarrassment is not only that I felt for myself. You know, there's a village of people that are needed uh, to make you a professional athlete, uh, whether it's your parents, coaches, friends, all of that. And when you come from a small enough town, that starts to flood you, too, is that, you know, here you are at your worst, kind of naked in front of 55,000 people, and uh, you've let a lot of people down, uh, including yourself. And Ron Darling has had it. So they pitched to Boggs in the second inning, and he burned them. He will not be burned again. And Darling is gone, 3 nothing Boston. I, I think professional athletes have broken into a couple of camps. Uh, some guys just have the greatest confidence and never ever think uh, twice about ever failing. And then the rest of us, and, and I think it's a majority, come into the camp of, of just making sure you don't fail. You love the upside of winning. I mean, it's amazing, but uh, you don't want to fail. And when you do, it, it's a tough time. Dennis Eckersley has this thing about, uh, he, he says that uh, he used to walk very slowly to the dugout after he'd maybe punched out three guys. Uh, and, but he said, because uh, he, he, he said, because I wanted everybody to go again. He, he said, I was just in that look at me moment. Look at me. He said, but the only fear thing is, you know, if you get roughed up and you get knocked out of the game, you've got to walk just as slow to the dugout. You can't put your head down and run. He said, you got to just let them look at you that time, too. That's the only thing that justifies the egotism of the first attitude. Well, Den- Dennis is, uh, became one of my my best friends when I was in Oakland, and uh, I will add something to his, is that they look at you more after you've gotten punished than they do after you've had a great <laughs> inning. I, I don't know. That's just human nature, I think. But look, you know, I mean, as self-lacerating as this book can be at certain times, it's a really absolutely unique book, I think, in the history of athletes writing about their own careers. I mean, look, you did win the World Series. <laughs> and not only yeah. you, you won a, a historic World Series. Let's at least take one moment to just bask in the sunshine of that. You, I mean, you say in the book you almost don't really remember what it was like in the aftermath of the game. Well, you know, the joy of winning and the parade was surreal. And I don't think there's anyone who had a bigger smile or happier than I was. But, you know, two or three days later, I was sitting in my apartment in New York City alone. And that's when it kind of dawned to me, well, you know, everything worked out. And I don't want to seem selfish here. Well, what the heck happened? And... Uh, <laughs> And that's when uh, the first uh, inklings of this book started, um, when I uh, spent a, a night alone in my apartment grinding over what happened in this ball game and kind of 
going over every single hitter, every single pitch. And uh, I, I know there's a lot of folks that are going to say, hey, listen, don't be such a baby. Your team won, you know, so you've had a bad game. You had good. It, it doesn't come from there. I, you know, I know that it, you know, I'm so proud that I, I get to wear a World Series ring. And that's what baseball is all about anyways, is 25 guys kind of picking up each other over six, seven months. But it's just an individual story of trying to figure out how these things happen. I think I've read enough about how when good things happen, I just wanted to kind of look at when it doesn't happen as great as you want it to. Ron Darling, uh, first of all, I want to remind people the book's called uh, Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph in the Biggest Game of My Life. You watch a lot of baseball now as a, as a TV analyst. Yeah. Um, this is... To me, anyway, it's looked in the early stages like a very interesting season. Now, I'm a Red Sox fan. I might have yeah. a completely prejudiced view of this. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're also obviously uh, very keenly attuned to the Mets, who are having another very interesting season in good ways and bad. And so, I don't know. How does the season so far look to you? What, what's the one or two big storylines for you so far? Well, I, I think um, I think there's been a shifting. You know, when I first started this job, I thought the American League always had better teams and more teams than the National League did. And I think that's kind of shifted. You know, there's five teams in the National League at the present pace are going to win 95 games plus. Looking at your Red Sox, an offense that you haven't seen in quite some time, and the retirement of, you know, the greatest DH in the history of the game at the top of his game, which very rarely happens for anyone in this game. Kershaw is putting up some numbers that are Kofaxian, if he can do it all season long, and I wouldn't doubt it because that's what a great player he is, he might have one of the greatest seasons that anyone's ever had in this game. And that's uh, after uh, his own teammate last year, Zach Greinke, went 19-3, and and Jake Arrieta, of course, had his magical season. Chris Sale is going to have something to say about who's the best left-hand, or at least he is in the American League. And the other thing is that the teams that played some really close baseball last year Houston, Minnesota, and others are not finding the same success this year. And, and, and that's uh, probably an analytic stream is that when you look at teams that had successful seasons but their run differential is not great, they're going to have trouble next year. So it's Harper, it's Trout. The game is in great shape. These athletes are, are, are tremendous. Unlike my day when every big athlete tended to want to be a hitter, Almost every big athlete now wants to be a pitcher, and that's why you have all these guys throwing 100 miles an hour. Can I just we talk about that for a second? I, I do feel that one of the things that I've seen over the last few years are a kind of conversation that maybe didn't exist 20 years ago, which is not to say that people didn't say, oh, so-and-so has lost his stuff or he doesn't really quite have his heater anymore, but th- this is so carefully measured now. So we've watched Matt Harvey of the Mets go through this kind of public, uh, I don't even know, inquisition about his stuff, <laughs> you know, uh, do you have it? Can you throw 97? Uh, were the Red Sox, we watched, you know, David Price was hitting like 90, 91, 92. People were really worried because he's throwing 92 miles an hour. What's the matter with his mechanics? I, I just don't remember quite that kind of conversation. And I don't know whether it's going on because you can measure it so well right now or because there's kind of an obsession with the, those upper 90s uh, verging on, on 100. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I, I think there's an obsession on the ability to measure quantitative numbers and what happens is that there used to be a time when I pitched that didn't matter how you got 27 outs is that you got 27 outs maybe 21 outs in today's game 
So what we have now is that uh, you almost uh, can't satisfy anyone unless you're kind of perfect. Now, if you go, if Matt Harvey was thrown like he's throwing now, and was five and two, there wouldn't be a word said because they'd be like, well, he's, his velocity's down, but he's a gamer and he's been really pitching despite not having his best stuff. But once you are on the other end of it, now it's okay. Everything is telltale signs of saying that you're going to have an awful year because your velocity's down, your velocity and your slider's down, velocity and everything's down. So I think it makes it, it puts these pitchers who probably got their original professional contract from being able to throw hard now are being hurt by being able not to, to hit the number almost. And it's an interesting thing to watch because, boy, you get to a point where how do, how do you satisfy enough people? And, and that, it wasn't about throwing hard, but now it's all about that. And you also wonder if there's sort of the equivalent of a Whitey Ford stuck where somewhere around A or double A because nobody quite understands that, I mean, there's a whole other way to pitch. And not that there aren't pitchers up there who are doing that right now, but there's a whole other way to pitch just by keeping the batters totally confused all the time. Yeah, I think it's even worse now. You know, Colin, in my day, at least they'd get drafted and be able to pitch professionally. I think now guys are just getting passed over all the time. Uh, that kid who's throwing 88 in college, uh, is looked down upon. You know, he'll never have the big arm needed to, uh, to get out in the major leagues, which is uh, is real BS. You know, there's so many different ways of, of getting of getting people out, like you said. But I think right now, the mechanics of throwing hard, not the mechanics of pitching, <laughs> mechanics of throwing hard are better now than they've ever been in the history of the game. But what is happening, I think, is that for these talented, big, hard throwers, is that the fall is going to be more precipitous than it's ever been because they never, ever learn how to pitch with less than perfect stuff. So when they start to fall, as Harvey has come back to the field, you know, will he be able to regroup and in his head go, okay, it's not about throwing 97. It's not about dominating, although I'd like to do both. It's about getting wins. It's about pitching effectively over two hours or whatever it takes. If they can't make that move in their career, the fall could be very precipitous for a lot of these hard throwers. They're going to go from top of the world to the junk heap within a couple of years. And, uh, and, and that's a shame because uh, learning how to pitch with less than A stuff is one of the great joys of the game. One of the great joys of this season, Ron Darling, has been your book, Game 7, 1986, Failure and Triumph of the Biggest Game of My Life. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us about it today. Thanks, Colin. Anytime. So what else has the kind of heartbreak in it that Ron Darling is ascribing to the feeling of pitching Game 7 of the World Series and not pitching well? Scrabble, that's what. We're going to talk about the world of competitive Scrabble when we come back. If there's one thing I'm getting a lot of emails about right now, seeing a lot on social media, it's you know, people are just very concerned about the uh, what appears to be the sudden dominance of Nigerian players in the world of competitive world Scrabble. People are panicking. I think it's unnecessary. There's politicians talking about building a Scrabble wall uh, and making Nigeria pay for it. Uh, that's probably unnecessary. Here to put it into perspective is Stefan Fatsis. Uh, he is a panelist on the weekly Slate Sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, which he just finished recording, and he is the author 
author of Word Freak, Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. First of all, there's been, there actually has been a lot of reporting about this, this Nigerian mm-hmm. thing. And then you co-wrote a kind of let's set the record straight article here or let's get a little bit of a handle on this. But maybe before we correct people's misimpressions, let's tell them what the misimpressions are. So first of all, like how recently did Nigeria become a big power in the world of competitive world Scrabble. They've been playing Scrabble competitively in Nigeria since the 1980s. They've had excellent players since the you know, 1990s, since the sort of the, the, there was a growth in the world competitive Scrabble scene in the 90s and 2000s. And the thing that we don't understand in North America is that there are players all around the world, many of whom don't speak English as their first language. There are, there's been a world champion from Thailand, uh, English as a second language. There are great players from Indonesia and Singapore and Pakistan and India and Nigeria and Kenya. English language Scrabble is a game that spans the globe, whether it's used as a teaching tool, as it is in some countries, or as a competitive pursuit, the way it is handled at the highest levels in the traditional English language countries like the United States, England, Australia, South Africa. Except that right now, Nigeria's success, the number of um, highly ranked world players, is completely disproportionate uh, to uh, the success of players from, as, as you say, these traditional Scrabble-playing countries. It is, and that's remarkable. And that is because Nigeria has this crazy culture around Scrabble. It is a state-sanctioned sport, literally state-sanctioned. The government gives money to the support and creation of Scrabble clubs. The media report on Scrabble tournaments. When Wellington Jigre won the World Scrabble Championship last November, he got a call from the president of the country. They have these big tournaments in Nigeria that attract hundreds of school children and people fly in from other countries to, to participate and they give out tens of thousands of dollars in prize money. It is this really kind of crazy proposition where this word game is valued for its intellectual qualities and supported by sponsors and the government and thousands of participants. Although we don't have that in the United States. I was going to say, having listened to you a lot and, and, and being aware of your thoughts about this, I'm surprised now to hear you calling that crazy. Isn't this exactly the way you think it should be here in the United States? Sure. I'd love for, for this game and other mind sports to have better traction in schools and to be more accepted in society. But I'm not naive. You know, we, I, Scrabble was on ESPN for six years in a row. I was the color commentator for two youth tournaments, national championships for kids, and for adult-level national championship tournaments. But it's not reasonable to think of that in, to think of Scrabble being sort of widely accepted as a spectator sport or worthy of corporate support, let alone government support. That'd be great. But realistically, in the sort of the sports culture that we live in, it's not happening. Um, and I sure, I think it should be, too. I think the Scrabble for kids should be more like the spelling bee, that there should be more penetration in schools. I've been coaching kids in Scrabble for 10 years. But on a sort of macro level, it's just not realistic to think that that's possible in our culture. Except that I believe Melania Trump is a very competitive Scrabble player. Uh, so if <laughs> if he gets in the White House, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you're going to see things change in exactly the way you want them to, at least on that particular front. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you play sad in a game, it's going to be worth a thousand points. <laughs> And huge. You'll be allowed to play spell huge two huge. different ways. You can spell exactly. it with a Y, uh, and that, that'll become legal. So um, the, the, the base canard that started to be circulated around was that the Nigerian players 
had sort of found some lightning in a bottle solution or new strategy right. to playing Scrabble that had not really been fully exploited by other uh, Scrabble superpowers. Uh, first of all, explain explain what the base canard was, and then you can set us straight. The Wall Street Journal did a page one story about Wellington Jigre, the, the new world champion, first Nigerian, first African world champion, which is a fantastic thing to celebrate. And they told that story of the culture really well, but then they kind of strayed into what journalists tend to do, is to try to find a hook, like a big, bold hook that will generate readers, a reason to put something on page one. And that hook was that the Nigerians have discovered that it is more effective to use short words than longer words. And initially, I think the story and the impression that it's left with a lot of people is that what the Nigerians do is they don't, they pass up playing bingos, the words that use all of your letters uh, on your rack, the seven tiles in front of you, and are worth an extra 50-point bonus. And instead, they are crafting a strategy that manages to score enough points to win at the highest levels by playing more five-letter words. Nothing could be further from the truth. Play bingos. Don't try to play short words. Don't think that this is a strategy per se. What the Nigerian players and many other players have done for 40 years is employ a particular style. You can play Scrabble offensively. You can play it defensively. You can play more short words that tend to clog the board and limit your opponent's abilities to counterattack. Or you can play a wide open game that gives both players a lot of opportunity to play and score more freely. The journal story left the impression that Nigeria has this distinct strategy that the computer analysis is demonstrating to be better at the game. It's not. What the Nigerians have done is emphasize that players learn the shorter words, the three-letter words, four-letter words, and five-letter words, and find ways to play more defensively. But this isn't new. This has been going on since the 1980s, and every possible strategy has been deconstructed and debated and analyzed extensively over the last 30 years. There's nothing really new here. And, and the, 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 way, the problem with the journal story was largely that they strayed into trying to analyze something that they weren't capable of analyzing and then didn't ask people who understood the game to help them analyze it. So they used examples from the championship finals that Wellington played in to demonstrate that he played very defensively. And he, they picked a few plays and they said this reflects this particular style. It was totally wrong. The, the computer analysis demonstrated that the examples that they used were just not accurate. Wellington played 12 bingos in four games, three per game. That is a haul of points in Scrabble. Every Scrabble player at the elite level that these guys play at memorizes almost every word. The, at the World Championship, they're using a, a Collins Dictionary. It's an international English, English dictionary. English as in England. It's got about 290,000 acceptable words from two to 15 letters long. In North America, we use a dictionary that's published by Merriam-Webster that's got about 190,000 words, so it's a much narrower dictionary. All of the top players learn as many of the words as possible. The three, four-letter and five-letter words are fundamental to the game when you're playing super competitively. I know all the three, four, and five-letter words that are, that are acceptable in North America. So to say that Nigeria is changing the game, which is how the journal phrased it, is a canard. Just so we don't blow past something that might be a little bit puzzling mm-hmm. uh, to uh, one of our listeners who's a little less Scrabble savvy. So to whatever extent this whole idea of playing defensively or, or small words has any meaning at all, the argument, I guess, was that the more tiles you're putting out there, the more tiles your opponent has to kind of attack with uh, his or her next word, right? That would be the risk of having a lot of tiles sitting out there waiting to be exploited. 
Yes and no, because you're always playing tiles. That's the basis of the game. Right. I mean, you can play a completely clogged board where you'll see mostly novice players play three-letter words that overlap each other in sort of a staircase that goes up to one corner or down to another corner. But the beauty of Scrabble is that it's all about risk and reward. So even if you play two or three-letter words, you're creating opportunity for someone to play. Throwing more letters out there doesn't necessarily mean that you're giving your opponent more opportunity. It's because you're also giving yourself opportunity. The, one of the cardinal rules of playing Scrabble at a higher level is that it's about action and reaction, risk and reward. One thing you'll often hear players say is don't open up a triple word score lane because your opponent can use it. Almost, you know, probably close to half the time you'll end up using it because Scrabble's a game of imperfect information. I don't know what you have on your rack, and I don't know exactly what's in the bag in the middle of the game. So you're always, you're always playing in a way that is giving an opponent something to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a game. Um, it's not feasible to say that, well, playing a five-letter word increases the risk over a four-letter word by 20%. It just doesn't work that way. So uh, we're talking to Stefan Fatsis right now, and we are talking about Scrabble, something that he knows a great deal about. So is there any – there's a part of me, I suppose, that as I listen to uh, all the descriptions of what it's like at the highest levels here, mm-hmm. at the most competitive levels, uh, I suppose I'm like the, the highly – prejudiced Oxford Don that's played by John Gilgood in Chariots of Fire because he sees <laughs> Abrams getting more competitive and hiring a coach. Well, when doesn't when doesn't have a coach? What, what does all this mean? You know, this is the sport of gentlemen, the sport of, you know, we don't do things like that. And so I'm sort of clinging probably to an outmoded idea of yeah. what Scrabble actually is. Scrabble, the way that you're describing it, it's almost like it's a slightly different game. It is a slightly different game. It's a completely different game. It's a math game. It's not a word game. When you play at home, and there's nothing wrong with this, when you play at home, you are sort of testing yourself to try to come up with something creative or clever, usually, something that that demonstrates your own vocabulary and your ability to spot something. At the highest levels in competitive Scrabble, it is very much a game about probability, about spatial relations, about geometry. It is not a game of words. The words are just the tools. And for a lot of people, that's a sacrilege because, hey, this is a game about language. Why are we talking about the probability that I'll draw an S at a particular point in the game? Or the space between the triple letter score and a double word score and how I can effectively capitalize on its existence on the Scrabble board. Or whether I'm more likely to draw a particular letter at a particular point in the game because I'm keeping track of the letters as they're played. So I know that, oh, there are six vowels left, but there are 12 consonants left. I've got to be careful and keep a vowel. So the way that we play competitive Scrabble is very, very different than the way it's played at home. And that's just a demonstration of the way that games can be taken advantage of, exploited. So in the, when, when Scrabble became a hit in the 1950s, it didn't take long for chess players to realize that this game had the same sort of competitive, strategic qualities that chess or backgammon did. And very quickly realized that, well, the way you're going to do better at this game is if you know more words. So they started looking through the dictionary and writing down all these short words, these two-letter words and three-letter words. And then over time, they realized that, oh, the way you're really going to win at this game is that if you know more seven-letter words. And which are the right seven-letter words to learn? Well, they're the ones that have the most frequently occurring letters in the bag and in English, sort of A-E-I-N-R-S-T, words that have a lot of those letters in them. So Scrabble players 
started making lists of words that had the most frequently occurring letters. So the game very quickly became a mathematical puzzle, much more than a, 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 a linguistic one. I feel as though from now on I'm only going to be comfortable playing Scrabble against my dog. And that anybody <laughs> else has probably given it more thought than I have. We're talking to Stephen Fazis right now. We're going to take a little break, but we're going to switch gears. We're going to go to something dramatically different. Spelling bees when we come back. Hey, if you're not a Scrabble player, these are words you'll never see. In our final segment, Stefan explains how Scrabble and spelling bees reveal the hidden beauties of the English language. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Esther Shitu and Adriana Smith. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mookie Wilson. For show pages, articles, and videos and the Here and Now staff losing a spelling bee on the word hallucination, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we question the very concept of intelligence. And now, back to Colin. We're back with Stefan Fatsis. He's a panelist on the weekly Slate sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and the author of Word Freak, Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. So you were uh, live tweeting, among other things, the uh, most recent uh, Scripps Howard spelling bee. And you were raising some interesting points, too, which is both of these contests, they traffic Scrabble and, and spelling bees traffic in the English language. So mm-hmm. they probably ought to be pretty nearly identical in the kinds of words that they feature, the kinds of words that they accept. I get the feeling uh, that they're not. Uh, so what are the differences? Well, the differences are in one in source. The spelling bee uses Merriam-Webster's third international, third new international dictionary, the word better known as Webster's Third, which is the biggest unabridged dictionary in American English. It's got about 467,000 entries online. It's got closer to 500,000 entries now. But they use the book book to create these lists of words that the kids are quizzed on in spelling. The source book in Scrabble is much narrower because it comes from college dictionaries, which are smaller. So the Scrabble source book, as I mentioned, has about 190,000 words. And the goal of each is different. They seem like parallel pastimes, games, if you will. And I, and I think that they are in some ways in that they do require you to solve a puzzle and to think spatially, to sort of put these symbols into the right order. The similarities are that you really don't need to know the definitions. And the definitions, though, help you in both games. If I know what something means in Scrabble, it might trigger a memory that might unlock uh, my ability to unscramble the letters in front of me and play the word. But I don't need to know the definition. In spelling, there is a definition component. The kids take a a computer test on the first day, and that includes a section that includes definitions. I wrote about this for Slate Mm -hmm. a a few years ago, and I think like adding definitions to the spelling bee was a bad idea. This year, they actually curtailed that, so the kids actually got to stand up on stage and spell more. So why did you think it was a bad idea? Because I think spelling bees are about knowing how to spell. Mm -hmm. Um, And if learning a definition helps you toward the narrow goal of spelling something correctly, well, great, learn the definition. But it's a spelling bee. It's not a defining bee. And a lot of people come back to that and say, well, it's about making sure that these kids learn more and that that this is about knowledge. It's not just about this narrow act of spelling. But in fact, it is about this narrow act of spelling. And the knowledge comes from being disciplined and drilling yourself and learning how to appreciate the way language is constructed, the way where English comes from. 
and finding solutions to this quiz of how do I spell that. Um, it doesn't need to be more than that in my mind. I think that's enough. And the kids at the very top of spelling are very much like the people at the top of competitive Scrabble in that they devote hundreds of hours to mastering the unmasterable, these dictionaries. And one got the feeling this year, I mean, obviously in the past, we've talked about McEnroe versus Borg. We've talked about Bird versus Johnson. Now we've got Hathwar versus Janga. These two guys, uh, these two competitors, they sort of maxed out at the top, right? They're just, it turned out that they both didn't know how to spell a particular word, but then neither one of them could beat the other one. These kids were remarkable. I mean, there've been co-champions in the spelling bee for the last three years now. And because of the co-championships in 2014 and 2015, the Spelling Bee organizers actually modified the last round of the tournament, adding more words and presumably harder words. And by harder, I mean, you look at any of these words and you are flummoxed. You can't (laughs) imagine that A, they're English, and B, that anyone would actually know how to spell them. And I think what the Spelling Bee, it seemed like what the Spelling Bee, the diabolical list creators for the Spelling Bee did was pull more words from more obscure languages with more obscure roots that are harder to suss out from hearing the meaning or hearing the language of origin. And they threw everything they had at these two boys. And one was a fifth grader, and I think the other was an eighth grader. And these kids just were like, then they were calling Nihar, one of the the co-champions, the machine, Mm. because he was not only spelling these words almost instantly— at a couple of points during the, the, the final rounds of the B, he was throwing the definition back at Jacques Bailey, the pronouncer, without having to ask for it. So he was saying, oh, is that uh, a word meaning the, a Breton bagpipe? And of course it was because he had clearly memorized far more than just the spellings of thousands and thousands of words. Yeah. No, I know at least four words for Breton bagpipe. Uh, oh, yeah. I did know it. Fl- there should be at least four, right? Right. I can spell flummoxed. Uh, I think that's the only thing that's come up so far that I probably <laughs> could spell. So reading your tweets, one got the sense that maybe some of these words, some of these more recherche words that are being used in the Ooh. spelling bee kind of tempt you, you know, that, that maybe uh, in the world of Scrabble, to which you've devoted more of your uh, attentions in your professional life mm-hmm. and your private life, maybe it would be nice to have a few more Breton bagpipe words. Did you feel as though were some of these beautiful words that were being spelled by the Spelling Bee contestants, you think thinking, why couldn't that be a Scrabble word? Well, they, a lot of them are Scrabble words, and those are the ones that I tend to get right when I'm, watching the, when I'm watching the Bee. It's like, oh, I can spell that because I've studied it. But a lot of these words aren't in the college dictionary. They're only in the unabridged dictionary because their usage doesn't merit inclusion in a narrower dictionary that's intended for general public or for students. So this book is, you know, this is the, it is much more liberal. There are far more words. And it's really still only a slice of the complete English vocabulary. It is far more expansive than we think. And I think what both of these pursuits should tell us is that English is this wonderful thing, Mm. that it is so broad and it is so expansive and it is so remarkable and it has roots in every language on the planet. What it teaches the kids, the kids I coach in Scrabble and the kids who do the spelling bee, it teaches them to appreciate what we've got and not be narrow-minded in their thinking about what constitutes a word and how we can use words. Words can be used in a lot of ways. They can be used just to, to do a game like Scrabble or to just learn how to spell them. It's not just about writing and talking. Stephen Vetsis, we've got you for another 60 seconds. So I guess this is what they call a hot 
take. So tell us, uh, uh, Golden State versus uh, Cleveland, what's going to happen in the NBA Finals? I'm actually trying to define hot take for Merriam-Webster. Are you really? Part of my book is is being a lexicographer. (laughs) So like I did in Word Freak, where I became a Scrabble player, I'm becoming a lexicographer, and Merriam is very kindly letting me try to define words. And I said town dump, but, you know, there are very high standards for getting words into even the unabridged dictionary. So it's not like anything goes, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that hot take will make it, but I th- kind of think it should. I I'm think it should because it's, it's a term that I'm a little bit confused about, so I should be able to look it up in the dictionary. So right, the question is, will it have any staying power? Will it stay in English? Does it merit being added to the dictionary, or is it going to be a passing fancy? Right. How much power does Jim Rome really have over the English language? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Would be a way of asking it. So just very quickly, but, but tell us, what do you think is going to happen? This, uh, we have kind of an interesting uh, NBA finals shaping up. I don't know whether you made a prediction or not on Hang Up and Listen. Uh, I'm, I, 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 we don't make predictions. Yeah. We're, we are out of the prediction business. Predicting is stupid. You know, what will happen? I don't know what will happen. I think it's going to be a terrific series. I mean, on certainly it looks like Golden State has the advantage because they, they, they match up pretty well against Cleveland. The things that the Thunder, that Oklahoma City was able to do to challenge Golden State in the Western Conference Finals, they have size, and they were able to clean up as, on the glass as rebounding, they, uh, particularly on the offensive side. Cleveland doesn't have that demonstrable advantage over Golden State. And what Golden State does well, move the ball, shoot threes, should give them the edge, I think. Though, you know, though Cleveland's been playing great, no one's hurt the way they were last year. They've been shooting the lights out on, on three-point shots that, as they did particularly against Atlanta in one of their series. So I think this is going to be great. And anytime you have the two greatest players right now on the planet, Steph Curry and LeBron James, this is going to be great fun for fans. I think you're kind of glossing over what is Golden State's big, biggest advantage, which is their magic. I mean, somebody should investigate Steph Curry's undocumented time at Hogwarts. I watched him do things that are completely unreasonable, where this big seven-foot guy is waving his arms <laughs> in his face and this jump shot kind of sails through that man's flesh and well, then kind goes of gravity into the defying too right they're yeah. gravity defying too i mean he is falling backwards and he's got a seven foot guy sticking his hand in his face or above where the basketball actually is right and he still manages to get in so i think you're right i think i saw a broom right, exactly that's my hot take that's my hot take this guy yeah. when he gets out of the nba he's going straight into quidditch <laughs> and uh, somebody ought to have the courage to come right out and say it. I just did. That's my hot take. Stefan Fatsis, such an honor to talk to you. Love your work. Love your uh, broadcasts on or your podcasts on Hang Up and Listen and obviously uh, to talk about Scrabble. Who else to talk about Scrabble than the author of Word Freak, Heartbreak, Triumph, Genius, and Obsession in the World of Competitive Scrabble Players. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Colin. I think if we're going to build that wall between the U.S. and Nigeria, it should be out of Scrabble racks. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, people could actually play on the wall. That would be nice. R-A-W-O, you know it. King, nice job, man. You too. I guess we're at the E-N-D, huh? E-N-D. <laughs> we out. This new deluxe German edition Scrabble board is huge. How many rows are there? Uh, the box says each side is Seiben, Tausends, Zwei, Hundert, Weirund, Fünfzig squares long. What? How many? Ugh. Seiben thousand zwei hundred weirund fünfzig. Hey, I think I can totally spell that word. Oh, nope, I'm missing an E. Son von einem Weibing. What did you say? Nothing. Frühenschaft bei Zeig und